We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We will introduce our guests momentarily, but I wanted to give a shout out to our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable.com. You guys may have heard Grandmaster Anish Giri's latest course is now available, Giri's 1E4 Part 3. Obviously, in addition to being a world-class player, he is a leading theoretician and a Twitter champion, so be sure to check out his course, as well as all of their other new courses, which are voluminous and informative, whether they be about openings, uh, middle games, or end games. And of course, they all utilize space repetition, something our guests know a bit about to uh, help you uh, learn. And speaking of our guests, they are co-authors of the new book, Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. They also previously co-authored the book, The Invisible Gorilla. One of our guests likely will be familiar to a lot of listeners, uh, Dr. Christopher Shabri, who, of course, is a renowned cognitive scientist, author, USCF master, and active player, joining us, in fact, the day after he he concluded a tournament with his son. He's also a chess dad, a chess book recapper, and we are pleased to welcome him back. Welcome back, Chris. Hi, great to be back. I do. I, I don't know if I set the record now. We can discuss the details later, but uh, it's, I'm trying to compete for the record for most appearances here. Yeah, you are getting up there. And to introduce your co-author, uh, he has often collaborates with Dr. Shabri. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Illinois-Urbana and the head of the Visual Cognition Laboratory. He's done a lot of interesting experiments over the years, and he is also a tournament chess player, although long retired from OTB chess, at least for now, as we'll discuss. But I am pleased to welcome to the program for the first time, Professor Daniel Simons. Welcome, Daniel. Great. Thanks for having me on. 
Yeah. So I know you guys are busy. This book will be out the same day as this podcast, if all goes according to plan for both the book and the podcast, July 11th. So I know you've already been doing some interviews about it. I I greatly enjoyed the book. It covers a wide range of topics, including chess for listeners. Chess makes... I knew there would be some chess in it as a chess fan and being uh, friendly with Christopher, but I didn't know when, and it wasn't necessarily the exact uh, context I was expecting when it made an appearance. But before we get to chess, there were several things that surprised me as someone who's read a decent amount of sort of um, business books and self-improvement books. And there's there's a few sort of prominent people who, who maybe didn't have their proudest moments as you guys identified. Of course, the theme of the book is situations where we're misled and sometimes people can be intentionally misled and other times um, not so intentionally. But one one of the things that really surprised me was you guys talk about growth mindset, which of course has come up on the podcast and the evidence for it maybe wasn't as strong as I thought. Uh, Dan, could you walk us through, A, for anyone who's not familiar, possibly what growth mindset is and B, what you guys uncovered about it? Sure. So uh, the, in its simplest form, growth mindset is the idea that you should focus much more on how you can improve, how you can do better, as opposed to what your accomplishments are and what your achievements are. Um, so thinking about uh, growth in terms of your learning and your abilities and your practice, instead of thinking in a static way that I am this intelligent or I am this good, thinking about what you can do to improve, the argument is that if you have that mindset that you want to reinforce effort and progress and not reinforce achievement, um, that you end up doing better. That's that's the idea. So it's mostly applied in an education context and curriculum and, and things like that, where the idea is if you reinforce people for their effort and putting work in and trying, um, that will lead to more growth, uh, more improvements in performance. Um, so that that's the, in a very kind of simplistic way, that's the idea. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah. And I was just going to say, it, of course, has a lot of applications to chess. In fact, um, Dr. Barry Heimer, who also works as a cognitive scientist and Grandmaster Peter Wells, wrote a book called Chess Improvement. It's all in the mindset, sort of building off of the research of Carol Dweck, who uh, was one of the original studiers uh, of uh, pioneers in, in this research. Um, and I think there's something very appealing about the idea that if you think you can get better at something, you will be able to get better at something. Um, and I know that it's become popular enough that like my kids who are 10 and seven, like they know what growth mindset is because it's discussed openly um, in schools. Um, and obviously, I personally don't have anything against kids being told that they can they can achieve a lot if they believe in it. But uh, what did you guys uncover about what the research um, or the possible shortcomings in the research, I guess you could say. Well, I, I, first, first, we didn't actually uncover. We, we're not growth mindset researchers, and um, we're reading the literature on growth mindset. Um, I think the, the first thing to say is that there's nothing inherently wrong with this idea that you can get better at things, right? And that focusing on um, your effort and your work to get better can be a good thing, right? No, nobody's arguing that, I don't think. Um, a lot of the claims that came out in that literature were things like growth mindset can improve your intelligence, right? Or growth mindset will have radical effects on your performance in school, right? And uh, some of the claims about growth mindset and thinking that way were that very simple short interventions, you know, just doing a little bit of rethinking uh, could lead to massive long-term effects. 
And that doesn't seem to be as rigorously supported as, as you'd want, right? Especially given how much this is marketed to school districts and implementing sort of growth mindset into the curriculum. Um, the benefits for real world performance uh, in a couple of very large meta-analyses don't look huge, right? There might be some benefits, but they're not going to be a massive change to everybody's experiences. On average, yeah, and pretty small effects. And that hits at sort of one of the broader themes of the book and something that you guys have done some work on with uh, other studies in that the idea of replication um, could uh, either either Dan or Chris, could one of you um, give a primer for our listeners about uh, this important uh, tenet of scientific research? Uh, sure, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to. I Anyone who does science ought to be able to explain replication and why it's important. But surprisingly, some people who do science don't think it's very important, and that's that's one of the that's one of the you know one of the the, the problems in in science these days. Replication very simply refers to the idea that if someone does an experiment and claims that the results are a certain follow a certain pattern, a certain size of an effect, a certain thing happens when they do the experiment, other scientists ought to be able to run the experiment the same way and see the same thing like literally replicate, like see the exact same results by doing the exact same thing. And in fact, when you're in seventh grade science and you do little experiments, you know, with with you, you can do in a classroom, you know, you are replicating things that other people have done over and over again, and you are expecting to get the same results. And, you know, if you don't, you discuss why with the teacher and so on. Um, it's a very simple concept in, in science. And surprisingly, um, I would say a, surprise, a, a, a disappointing number of experiments in behavioral science, social psychology, um, uh, other areas of psychology, uh, and other fields of science, um, biology, medical research, and so on, um, that get published in high-profile journals and report like very surprising or large effects and so on, can't be replicated by other researchers or prove very difficult to replicate. Um, and this is, of course, leaving aside issues of fraud, although, you know, a failure to be able to replicate an experiment might tell you that there was something very seriously wrong with the initial one. But the initial experiment could have just been accidentally, you know, achieving, uh, you know, excellent results. And the fact that it can't be replicated just means that, well, you know, someone made a mistake someplace, someplace along the way. But I guess the only one thing I'd add is that I think one of the points that that we try to emphasize is that when you read popular accounts of what behavioral science has to tell us about getting better at chess, about, you know, live, you know, life hacks that can improve your life, about how to change education policy, you know, about any of those things, we, we need to think, are they really talking about experiments that were replicated that multiple independent scientists have done and have reached the same conclusion, or just like one really flashy, cool thing that was published in one paper somewhere and has gotten a lot of you know, a lot of attention because those two things are radically different in how much we should trust them and rely on them in sort of making decisions for ourselves. Yeah, it's a good point. And I certainly felt guilty in reading it. I mean, a lot of sort of venerated scholars and writers, um, you guys point out, uh, have made mistakes along the way, whether it be in their actual research or maybe just in citing something um, without doing um, due diligence. So, if we all strive to be more informed, how would you guys recommend when we do read, say, um, you know, um, bananas are bad for you or something like what's the what's the next step? Where, where do we go from there? 
I just add to the idea of replication that, you know, there are lots of reasons things can not replicate, right? It, it could be that the original study was wrong, which happens. Um, it, it could be that you didn't do it right, which is often the case in that seventh grade science lab where you're trying to reproduce some standard classical physical process and you just get something wrong, you do it wrong. Um, and sometimes the context can change and sometimes the information just wasn't complete. So I have, I have an example of a study that we were trying to replicate. It's a, a prominent effect that lots of people can get in the literature and we weren't getting it. And um, we didn't know why, you know, we were, we were really struggling with it. Um, we knew that it was a robust effect because other people can get it repeatedly. So we talked to some of the other people who did it. And this was a simple, boring computer task where you're flashing letters on a screen. And we showed our displays to one of the experts in this field and said, oh, your lines are too thick. Like, it's the sort of thing that was never mentioned in any of the articles. How thick should the lines be? But it turns out if they were too thick, it kind of wiped out the effect in some, some boring way. Now, to us, that was like, okay, it failed to replicate because we were using too thick lines, which tells us that maybe we shouldn't care that much about the original finding because it only applies when you use lines that are exactly the right thickness, which probably means it's not very general. Right? So one of the things that comes up a lot in these sorts of literatures, even when something does replicate, we should be asking ourselves, is this a general phenomenon? Is this something that's generally true? Has it been tested on more than just a bunch of college sophomores? Um, has it been tested with more than one kind of material? Um, has it been tested with more than one kind of banana in your example? <laughs> right? um, if it hasn't, then maybe we shouldn't make a claim that it's a broad discovery that applies to all of life. Yeah, hearing you discuss that, Dan, it made me think of one of the studies. And of course, there were many in the course of the book that I'd, I'd read the study and took it, taken it as gospel. One of them was this, this study that if you strain to read something, you will better remember it. Yeah, the, it's fine. Uh, you talk yeah, about that. Yeah, I would. I'd, I'd be happy to talk about that one. But by the way, um, one of the games I lost in my recent tournament, my opponent broke out a banana about move thirty and proceeded to proceeded to get the advantage not long after that. So I'm a believer in the bananas are good for you. <laughs> okay, theory good. at least in chess, based on that it, one. It, it's settled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one dramatic example is enough for me. Um, Other people's bananas are bad for you, then. <laughs> right. Yeah, that right. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's right when your opponent. Yeah. yeah, when your opponent starts eating a banana, that's bad for you. <laughs> um, so the stu yeah the study you're referring to um, is is, is uh, said to be an example of this concept called desirable difficulty that when you are um, you know, trying to to solve when you're trying to uh, learn something or improve at something, you shouldn't do easy examples, right? Like we shouldn't keep on doing mate and one chess puzzles if we want to become masters, right? We should challenge ourselves. And a lot of chess trainers will say this, right? They'll say challenge yourself with puzzles where maybe you get like 60% correct or something like that, right? Um, uh, whereas like maybe when you're warming up, you know, uh, before a game, do something much easier. But when you really want to improve, you should challenge yourself and create so-called desirable difficulty. And um, the study you're talking about, I think one could argue, took this concept a little bit too far and claimed that um, if you printed uh, math problems, for example, in one of the studies, um, sort of confusing math puzzles in a hard to read font, like light gray italic type instead of, you know, sort of normal black type. Um, the difficulty of reading the light gray italic type would sort of somehow in your mind activate, um, you know, the concept of difficulty and the need to apply like more, you know, more thought and more reasoning and cause you to work harder on the problem and notice that the obvious answer was wrong and you needed to do more math and think very, you know, more deeply about it in order to get the right answer. 
So it's kind of like an appealing story, right? It's like, oh, we can we can sort of manipulate ourselves into trying harder by just changing the way things are printed or, you know, read or whatever. Maybe the chess analogy would be like diagrams that are like really faded and hard to read or in an obscure font or something like that. Then we'll work harder and we'll solve more difficult combinations or even play chess with some weird chess pieces, you know, like those old like chess sets with, you know, everyone looks like a Middle East, a medieval, uh, you know, character or something. We'll, which is honestly for a chess player, the opposite of reality. Like it would be much harder to play chess with weird looking chess pieces. But to my mind, this theory sort of predicts that you would actually sort of like learn more that way. Anyhow, the main experiment on this was done on those um, those famous college sophomores, or at least college students that Dan alluded to, 40 Princeton University undergraduates, and um, found a big effect of printing you know, math problems in, in gray type. But another group of researchers um, uh, tried to replicate this, and they tested 8,000 people from a wide variety of diverse backgrounds, including college students, and found zero influence at all of printing things in hard-to-read typefaces. When another group of researchers tried to replicate the original study on the Princeton students using a diverse you know, uh, sample of 8,000 people, they found zero influence of printing uh, math problems in hard-to-read typefaces. And so that's a failure of replication uh, with 200 times more participants in their experiment. Um, and yet one still hears the original result talked about as though it gives you know evidence for desirable difficulty and making things harder to read and process and so on, when in fact, you know, it provides no evidence. And when people say, oh, well, there's a conflict in the literature, more research is necessary. The study with 8,000 people was the more research that was necessary. And now the more research is not necessary anymore because we found out that the original research, for whatever reason, just came to the wrong conclusion. Uh, and but it's the original research is the kind of thing that will show up in a lot of those books that you you know that you're alluding to and, and articles and you know and and uh, pieces of advice. Yeah, and and as you allude to, like when when it's an appealing idea, when when you read about the the effect, and you say, oh, I could see how that happens. Like people want to run with it. So uh, yeah, that that one among many really took me by surprise. We will be right back with more from Dr. Simons and Dr. Shabri. And we are back. On the topic of replication, um, I think maybe we should discuss something with a, a chess angle. And uh, Dan, I was reviewing your um, dormant YouTube page, and I think Chris and I talked about this in one of our early interviews, but you guys actually did a chess replication with uh, Grandmaster Patrick Wolf that I uh, enjoyed uh, rewatching. So um, could you walk us through? I know there's been uh, sporadic research about chess over the years, but I particularly enjoyed watching that video. Yeah. Now the YouTube page is still live. I just don't post to it very often. But uh, yeah, that video was something that um, there, there's classic old research on how uh, chess masters remember chess positions. And some of this ended up in Chris's dissertation work. Um, but uh, the, the idea was that when you show, say, a good chess player a position just for a few seconds, they'll be able to recreate it fairly effectively. They're able to chunk the pieces into memory, uh, hold them in a meaningful way. And the classic argument was that the way people would recreate these chess positions as the better players would be able to group together more pieces into meaningful configurations, right? So they they know what a castled king with three pawns in front of it looks like, right? So um, that would just be a chunk. They wouldn't have to remember the position of each pawn and where the king is and where the rook is and which square they're on. They remember it as a unit 
and that they'd put those down and then move on to a different section of the board and put down other chunks of the, of the position. And that the argument was that that's how they're doing so much better. They don't have to remember all of the pieces individually. They remember a smaller number of chunks, maybe about seven. And that's how they can recreate the position. Um, so we actually just wanted to redo their studies. If you look back at the original studies from Chase and Simon, they really didn't test many people. They had you know, one kind of expert, uh, one sort of amateurish tournament player, kind of my level, and then one novice. Um, so it was about as small a sample as you can get. And there were other uh, other studies along the same lines um, that were a little bit bigger, but uh, none of them really tested top level players. So we wanted to bring in, you know, somebody who is actually really good and have them do this. And it's a really fun video to watch because, of course, he will play it up, right? So, of course, he remembers the positions fairly completely. And then after we finish, he'll go back over them and tell you what he was thinking at each position and why his his mindset was just dominated by something that was happening in the position. Whether or not he remembered that on the fly or noticed that in the five seconds that we showed it to him or just kind of recreated it and thought about it after he was recreating the position, can't really tell. But, um, but of course, he did really, really well. And the kinds of mistakes he made were generally meaningless ones. You know, whether a rook is on, you know, C1 or D1 and didn't matter in the position, he might get that wrong. But the stuff that actually mattered to the position, he generally got right. And it wasn't so much in chunks. And Chris, maybe you could talk about how he described that because it was really fascinating. I, I can also add that you can see in the video where we give Patrick a couple of positions where the pieces are arranged in completely random locations at the start. He He looks at a diagram with like 25 pieces on it for five seconds, puts it down, and then he puts out like six pieces on the board and starts scratching his head, you know, and like yeah, can't he wasn't remember anything close. more and just gets stuck. Yeah, nowhere close, right? Like a yeah. huge effect, right? Like he gets like 90% correct on the normal looking positions and, you know, 25% correct, you know, or lower on the random pieces. And that was the classic experiment that showed that it's, you, that that proves sort of in a sense that you, you can't be memorizing the individual pieces because if they were memorizing the individual pieces, it shouldn't matter where they are. Right. When they're randomly distributed on a chessboard, you could just memorize all 29 pieces or something like that. But that's not what that's not the way it works at all. And you can see his frustration and, <laughs> you know, you can see how he has a great story for how he remembered the normal position, you know, the, the positions from normal games. But but completely, you know, and I, I tend to believe him. Like, I mm -hmm. have to say, I think my thinking has changed a little bit, bit about this. We did that like 25 years ago, maybe 26 years ago, 20, 25 years ago. I was a little more skeptical of these rich stories that grandmasters would tell about what they were thinking. But my uh, thinking has evolved a little bit since then, in, in part because of the influence of what Patrick and a couple of other people told me when I interviewed them, which is um, they think a lot more in sort of high-level concepts during the game. And I feel like maybe one of the keys to me getting better is trying to think more in that way and less in terms of specific moves and just sequences of moves, but more in high-level concepts. Remember to sort of like actually think about what you're trying to achieve and describe it in words or what your opponent is trying to achieve and describe it in words instead of just visualizing moves. So I sort of tend to believe him more than I did then. So Patrick, if you're listening, I, I'm sorry for doubting you. <laughs> yeah. And it is. And this one, again, getting back to like why some studies there, you can feel an aha with the conclusion, whether it's justified in some cases or not justified in some cases. But I will say that when you showed Patrick the random position as a chess player, the position offended my sensibilities, you know, like, and I think, uh, I think Patrick had sort of a visceral reaction, but like, it was almost like he, 
he, I mean, he, I don't know if he knew about the prior study. I'm guessing he did, but there was almost like a visceral reaction to this sort of random assortment of pieces with a bunch of pawn, bunch of white pawns on the seventh rank, you know, like, um, he, he, he just, he, he, he didn't even want to, uh, attempt it felt like to try to remember this position that clearly wasn't from like a high level chess game. I think he knew about this research in the past, but he'd never actually tried to do it himself in like a timed, you know, environment. So he he kind of knew abstractly what he was getting into, but still was maybe surprised at how uh, hard it was. I think maybe the, the aesthetic sense you describe is maybe also one reason why um, chess problems, you know, meaning sort of like made in two, made in three, where the pieces can be anywhere on the board that's a legal position never really take off with serious chess players as a training method. People are trying to make that a, a training method these days, right? There are these books like um, Rewire Your Chess Brain and so on, where they tell you to solve mate and twos and mate and threes. I don't know that there's any evidence that that actually works, but I tried it a little bit myself because I heard it was a fad and I just couldn't get over the hump of this is just too weird. Like it surely must be more profitable to study like the kinds of positions that could occur in games than these seemingly random, aesthetically offensive, you know, jumbles of pieces. That's funny. That's in my book, because after my most recent interview with Grandmaster Wojciech Miranda, who's a top trainer from Poland, uh, we got to talking about endgame studies and he, he, Chris, drew that exact distinction. He said, and <laughs> you know, I'm spoiling some of the material that would be revealed in my book, but he sent me a specific quote, basically saying that he thinks endgame studies at large are uh, vastly overrated and he only likes ones that are realistic, that look like they could come from an actual position. Yeah. But if yeah. it's a random assembly, he he thinks that people are, are not uh, optimizing the chess study time. Yeah, well, my own coach, uh, Eric Kislik, also uh, agrees with that as well. So it's not an uncommon sentiment among professional trainers, I think. it's. A, I mean, it's a nice idea. Everybody should always be trying new things and so on. It can't be, you know, it can't be terrible to try new things. But I think that one, I think that one might be a little bit overrated. I'm waiting for the randomized controlled trial to see whether it really makes chess players higher rated if they, <laughs> if they do that. And we'll never see that. We won't see that experiment anytime soon, I don't think. But it would be cool if someone would try it. Yeah, there there are many moments in my book where I said, if only we if only we had some large scale uh, research on this, which uh, brings me to my next question. Now, uh, I've had the the privilege of picking Chris's brain a lot over the years, Dan, about uh, the state of chess research, the state of um, uh, deliberate practice and topics like that, um, but not as much yours. Um, if is there any chess study? I'm putting you on the spot here, but is there any uh, cognitive study of chess that you would really like to see? Um, you know, nothing comes to mind immediately. Uh, the, obviously, it's a big literature and it's a long literature. Um, I was just going to kind of echo one point about the sort of difficulty of training and and kind of problems that aren't realistic. Um, there, there's a general principle from the psychology of learning that goes back over 100 years now um, that the training you do tends to be pretty narrow and specific to the thing that you're practicing. So practicing something unrelated to what you're trying to improve, like practicing your working memory performance on some boring cognitive task on a computer, probably isn't going to improve your chest performance. It might be that the transfer you get is even narrower than that, right? So if you're practicing weird problems with weird configurations of pieces, you know, you'd have to make a case that it would generalize to real games. And that case is hard to make, right? That, you know, the transfer you're going to get, you're probably going to get better and better at solving those kinds of problems if you do a ton of them, right? And wow. whether that improves your tactics in a real game situation, 
maybe, but you'd have to make the case that it's general to more natural configurations, and it's not necessarily true that it is. Okay. What makes people smarter and better at things is a little bit elusive. You know, there are a lot of appealing metaphors, like people who believe in this cognitive training stuff that Dan has been discussing always use the metaphor of a muscle. Like you train a muscle group in the gym, you know, and yes, you can see those muscles getting bigger, right? You know, and, and so on. But that doesn't mean that when you do a particular kind of task, you can see an area, you know, anyone can see an area in your brain growing and that you can then use that area for some other task the way you could use your bigger biceps to lift heavier boxes, right? Like it's it's an appealing analogy, but there's no reason to think that the brain works like a muscle aside from the fact that they're both things that can, you know, can do more and less and, yeah. you know, and, 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 and so on. I think, you know, there's, there's good evidence that formal education makes us smarter. Um, it's hard to find that evidence because it's hard to randomly assign people to not get educated or to get educated, but there have been some natural experiments that have sort of led to that circumstance. But I don't think anyone really knows what it is exactly about formal education that makes us smarter. It's probably the diffuse, all the diffuse activities of, of, of thinking and reasoning and all the things we do. And maybe that's why like actually playing tournament chess games and analyzing them is thought by many trainers to be the best training for chess because that you're actually doing the thing. <laughs> you're right, doing yeah. the thing and you're you're analyzing all the phases of the game, the openings you played, the middle games you the tactics you missed, the end games you couldn't win, you know, and so on. It's like the whole it's like you're it's like formal education, but just for chess, you know? It's not intuitive to people how how much the sort of learning doesn't work like a muscle, right? Um it feels like it should, right? But um you know, here, here's one example that's really narrow. We did a study on change detection. So we present an array of objects and then we take them away and we make a change. Like imagine a chessboard where we move a piece, right, between the two views and look at whether or not people would notice it. Right? And we we let people practice this. And it wasn't with chess pieces. It was just with arrays of objects, right, or kind of images. And they practice this over and over again for 10 hours, right, across a bunch of days. Right. Then we test them on that same task with those same materials, and they're much better, right? They've practiced that task. They've gotten a lot better at it. Then we swap out the objects for a different set of objects, exactly the same task, nothing else changing, and they're back to baseline. Right? Wow. They, they show no. So that what they've learned is how to detect changes to those objects in that task. But what they haven't learned is how to do that task, right? They haven't gotten any better at that task. They've gotten better at that task with those specific features. Um, and as you change the features and suddenly the ability is back to normal or back to baseline. So that's a, that's a common sort of finding in the psychology of learning that the thing you practice, unless you practice it in a whole wide variety of ways, tends to be pretty narrow. So if the brain, if you would not categorize the brain as a muscle, which, you know, obviously that does make sense, although you do hear it said sort of as an analogy, like the brain is a muscle, so you have to exercise it to, to get it better. But is there is there a better analogy for how to think of uh, training the brain? Or is that just too broad a question? Well, I mean, practice practice does make you better, right? Um, if, you, if you do the same thing over and over again, you do improve in the same way that if you do the same, let's say all you do all day is uh, curls with, with a barbell, right? And that's the only thing you do, right? You're going to strengthen one set of muscles, but you're not going to get generally stronger. Right. And in fact, it may make you sort of uneven. Right. Um, so, you know, practicing one thing over and over again, if that's the thing you want to get better at. Yeah, that's great. Right. So in real world context, if you want older drivers to get better and safer as drivers, think about the one thing that they're most at risk for, which is left turns in traffic and practice that extensively. Right. Because then you can get better at that or work around it. But 
you know, doing kind of computer games is not going to improve that because it's not training a general ability. It's training your ability to do that task with those materials. Okay. How about yeah. the brain is a brain? The, <laughs> no, no, it's got to like, be an there's, analogy. There's, there's a hundred, a centuries long history of the brain is an X or the brain is like yeah. an X, right? It's a sponge. It used to be like a, a telephone network. Then it was a computer. Then it was a parallel computer. A web browser. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, a web browser. Like there, there's metaphors for the mind. There's the brain works like this. There's, there's a whole strain of cognitive science research where people try to come up with sort of like single unifying principles for how the brain is working. But I, I tend to be in the school of the brain is a very complicated thing that evolved over, you know, millennia and millennia and millennia, you know, millions of years, you know, to be able to, you know, do things that keep us reproducing and you know, keep the brain, you know, in existence over, you know, future generations and coming, trying to come up with like one simple metaphor or principle for it, you're probably going to be misleading yourself more than you're going to be actually like helping yourself accomplish anything. Makes sense. Um, well, a broad theme of the book is how to avoid being misled. And I don't want to um, give away too much of the material. And I, I do want to pursue a few more chess angles momentarily, but I did just want to tell you guys, I really enjoyed the the little lesson about uh, Nigerian scammers, um, not always Nigerian, but uh, stereotypically often they are often they are said to be Nigerian and there's certainly some scammers from Nigeria. But uh, basically I, this idea that the proper way to respond to them, um, I, I guess I'll, I'll let one of you guys uh, give the takeaway rather than than me. Well, the odds are good that most of your listeners are not the target for that scam. Right? And, um, <laughs> well, we all and get those emails, though. We all get those emails, but almost none of us will ever respond to it and think, oh, yeah, all I have to do is send them a little bit of money and I'll be rich. Sure, right? Or send my um, bank info. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's a pitch aimed at people who really want the get rich quick scam, you know, the get rich quick idea without thinking through, you know, how likely it is. Um, but the way those scams often work is that it's really cheap to send out millions of emails. Right. And what they're aiming to do is filter out the skeptics, filter out the people who would say that's too good to be true, because if those people respond, then they spend time interacting with them, but they're never going to get their bank account. Right. What they want is just the people who would look at a message filled with typos and a bizarre heading and um, other sorts of stuff and say, oh, this might be the opportunity of a lifetime. They want mm -hmm. those people to respond. Um, so. You know, that's it's a selection process. They're trying to find the targets for their scam and having people self-select into it by responding to their emails. Um, the way to combat it, of course, is to take up the scammer's time without actually sending any money. Right? So if, if you want to sort of make the scam less profitable, the more time they spend with people who don't give them their money, the less profitable it becomes for them. But this is just one of many forms of what's known as an advanced fee scam, where they try and get a little bit of money up front um, and you never actually see any big reward. Um, but yeah, it, I, it's it struck me as so obvious once I read it, but it had never occurred to me that, that they intentionally make these emails uh, look um, implausible. <laughs> yeah. Some do. I mean, yeah, you think after all these... Oh, sorry. You think after all these decades, they would have someone would have advised them on the typos and the, yeah. you know, the grammar and so on, and they would have. But it, it, it's never happened because because that would ruin it if it right. was a perfectly written message and so on that would ruin it because they would get too many responses and then they'd have to they'd have to deal with all that. 
There are right. there are better variants of those, and there are other other variants of those that are not as sort of obvious, right? Right. Um, that sound a little more sophisticated. That might be written in more um, realistic language instead of discovering lost treasure. So I, I got one right after Russia had invaded Ukraine, right? Um, got one that was asking about. Uh, proposing a business venture for some wealthy Russians who needed someplace to invest, right? And, you know, who knows what the eventual goal of this was, and I'm sure that they would have asked for money at some point, um, but it was written in decent English, right? Um, and that's because it's aiming for a different target audience. It's looking for people who, you know, are business people, and they're not going to respond to this classic sort of jumbled English Nigerian email scam. So it all depends on who they're trying to target. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. And it does lead me to a chess topic. Now, of course, in the book, there's some chess cheating talk that comes up. Um, I, of course, Chris, enjoyed the John von Neumann story, although um, because I was at that World Open. But uh, I talked about that for listeners who heard my interview with uh, Joel Benjamin and Harold Scott winning the World Open. Uh, we talked about that story. So for listeners who didn't hear that interview, you could check it out. But also, if you read the book, we'll leave that there. But of course, I did want to talk generally, since the broad topic of the book is how to avoid being misled. Guys, what are we going to do about cheating in chess? It just it feels so so hopeless to me. <laughs> do, do you guys share my uh my my concern that if we can't stop people from all of this misleading in the world at large, it's going to be tough to stop cheating over the board. Well, cheating over the board is different, I, I think. So I think cheating online uh, is hard to stop. Um, I think people like chess.com and Lee Chess are doing, you know, doing great work in attempting to do that and applying fancy algorithms and other methods and tricks um, to that. But I think the technology genie is out of the bottle. Uh, you know, it's 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 easy to consult a, a chess engine during a game. And kind of just like, you know, the fact that students are able to get chatbots now to write great essays for them as homework probably means that they need to be tested and measured under conditions where that's not possible. And over the board chess tournaments, you know, starting with the world championship, but going down to most weekend, you know, tournaments in the US and most open tournaments in Europe and so on do make it hard to cheat. They don't necessarily make it impossible. They need to make it harder, um, you know, than than they already do, I would say. Um, but many tournaments make it very difficult to cheat. And I think that's the way, you know, that that's the way we have to we have to go. I mean, one thing we talk about in in uh, in, in in the book a little bit is signs that people have been cheating against you. Right. So there are certain patterns that might give away, you know, cheating. One of the most common ones is, is consistency of move timing and matching, you know, computer best moves. And everybody sort of knows about that in the chess world. We sort of in the book, we sort of wrote that more for people who don't know about that kind of stuff in the chess world. We all know about that. But in the chess world, we also mislead ourselves a lot, I think, by thinking we have seen cheating when, in fact, we don't have enough evidence for it. And I would say, you know, you know, just personally say that a lot of people went overboard with this line of thought in the Hans Niemann case, um, which I know has been discussed recently, but they, you know, sort of started with the premise that, you know, this guy must be a cheater. And then they started looking for all these patterns in his games, you know, that they they thought they could interpret that way. And that was a massive exercise in, in self-deception, I think, on the part of a lot of those amateur, you know, amateur data detectives. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I agree on that point. And and Chris, having recently played two tournaments, like how often are you thinking about cheating during your tournaments? Uh, I mean, not you cheating, but but being I, cheated. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I honestly have never thought about actually cheating myself. I don't want to claim that I'm a moral, you know, moral paragon or anything like that, but it just doesn't occur to me. Um I think it's never gotten to the point where I'm so desperate for the results, you know, that I would ever consider that I would ever consider that. And I would sort of feel bad about myself afterwards, but I never thought any of my opponents in recent tournaments were cheating. Um, uh, I did, you know, you do see people at tournaments sometimes you think might be cheating because they're doing weird things, but they haven't been my own opponents. If, If one of them was my opponent, I probably would have said something. And I did say something to uh, i think i did say something about one of my opponents during a tournament a couple of years ago i'm not going to say what tournament or who or anything like that um uh and nothing came of it and i was probably wrong because there have been cases where i thought i was cheated against online even you know you look at the accuracy score and the blunders you know and all that and so on and you you have the sense during the game that someone's just like making good move after good move and one time i was wrong about it like when i looked at the game later i just realized i had made it easy for them to make good moves, right? Like I just was playing in such a fashion that like the obvious move was always good. Like, so it was really my fault. Um, I was just making it easy for my opponent, but in other games, like it's been a complicated position and they keep on playing the exact right move and they do it in five seconds every time, then you know something fishy is going on. Over the board, I rarely experience that. Maybe I'm naive, there are other players who feel like there's a ton of cheating and that they see signs of it all the time and so on and I don't, so maybe I'm a little naive or I'm just focused more on trying to make good moves. Um, than worrying about those kind of things. And there's a real danger, right? If you're if you're constantly assuming that there's cheating and looking for cheating, um, you can take the same data and interpret it as cheating when it wasn't, right? So yeah. you see that somebody played a you know 94% game and you say, oh, they must be cheating. It's like, well, occasionally people do play a great game, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean anything was wrong. Um, you know, good players find good moves, right? So... It's not surprising if they play a pretty accurate game occasionally. Um, yeah, uh, my friend uh, Nate Solon, who's a FIDE master who blogs about data and chess and very strong player about uh, 2600 Blitz. Um, and he often plays Entitled Tuesdays and he wrote a post, a lot of listeners probably saw this post about uh, playing, he finally beat Hikaru Nakamura. They played something like 30 times, um, you know, in online games over the the years and he finally beat him. And, and then he immediately had like cheat detection software court sort of run on him, um, which seemed, um, you know, like probably not a total coincidence, but, but Nate was sort of saying in the piece, like, you know, out of the 30 games I play him, I'm supposed to win one, you know? So, um, and actually, I don't know, I don't know if he had actually played Hikaru 30 times to be clear, um, but people along that level, like he he can win one out of 30 games and the one happened and now he's accused of cheating, which I get chess.com has a very difficult job, you know, because uh, there there are people cheating and, you know, given, given only a data point that someone 500 points lower rated beat Hikaru um, and played really well. Um, it's understandable to be suspicious. But when you look at the broader scope um, th- of someone who's never been suspected before, um, it- it's tricky. It-, it shows how, as Chris was saying, it shows how difficult it is to police it. it. It's a real challenge when you think about, you know, the sort of base rates for these sorts of things. One of the things we we 
find in a lot of cases of fraud across a whole range of fields is that people who've committed fraud once generally have committed it before. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's rarely a one-off sort of thing. And you have to kind of look at the entire body of work. Right. So when data sleuths in the sciences are suspicious about a case of fraud, what they will do if they're doing it right is to look at all of that person's work and then compare that person's work to the work of other people in the same field doing the same kinds of studies to see, do their data just diverge from everybody else? And do they consistently diverge? Do they seem to have the same sorts of issues over and over and over again? And that still might not be fraud, but at least then you know it's not just a one-off sort of thing. Because if somebody's cheating, they're probably not doing it in a one-off case, right? So if he's played 30 times, you have to look at all of those games. Okay, did he just happen to have one of his best games right then and did you know nakamura have one of his worst games right and just see if it balanced out in the right way yeah uh this is a bit far afield and i actually didn't research it a ton myself but i did when i don't know if you guys saw i know you do touch on some business stories in in your book but when apple did this rollout for its newfangled headsets um i saw some people online saying and i i didn't even watch like a demo video so i i could be speaking out of turn here but my general understanding is you put this thing on and you it's it's like a computer in front of your eyes with but with a wholesale view of whatever's in front of you and i heard some people say that this could be sort of a paradigm shifter in terms of online chess cheat detection um did didn't either of you guys like follow this this apple general story at all about the headset and or and i'm curious if you have any thoughts about about stuff like that eventually making online cheating uh, less uh, inevitable? Less inevitable or more inevitable? Less inevitable. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I don't know enough about the technology and and, and how it and, and how it would yeah. work. But I guess my general view on this is um, online playing without multiple cameras monitoring or a hybrid format where you have arbiters in the room, you know, who we can trust and so on is, is not a good idea for high stakes, for high stakes events. I mean, it could be for events for money with enough protections and so on, but um, you have to accept that occasionally, you know, people will get through the cheat detection methods um, otherwise and just live with it. It should make you feel better about your game, right? Because if like, if you can, if you can get to a certain rating, you know, online and you know that there's, you know, a small number of cheaters and who you played, well, maybe you're actually better than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if, if, uh, uh, if, if they, you know, if they took points off of you, um, Dan, did you, did you see the, the demos yeah, of the Apple headset and so on? It's, I mean, it is basically an augmented reality system, right? So it's glasses that are projecting essentially a computer display over the real world. Um, I guess I'm not sure, not knowing enough about how online uh, online play tends to work. If there's not that sort of dual camera monitoring or somebody in the room monitoring, I'm not sure how much of a difference it would make relative to just having Stockfish on your phone. Um, right. right. You, you can you can run an engine on any computer. You could run an engine on a second computer right next to you. Right. So um, unless unless there's something about you know monitoring where they're looking, if somebody's playing chess online and they're wearing an augmented reality glasses yeah be suspicious right well That's, yeah so the product is called know. vision pro and my right. under my understanding and again this is without having unfortunately i wasn't planning on this yeah. as a topic so unfortunately i didn't uh do as much due diligence as i would have under the circumstances mm-hmm. but my understanding is that it's 
it provides a panoramic view of wherever it is you're sitting. And the idea was that um, a player who's competing in Title Tuesday, right now these things are going to cost thousands of dollars, right. so we're talking way down the road, but a player who's competing in Title Tuesday could then give remote control to the proctors and they can then make mm. sure that everything within your uh, area is um, yeah. is is legit. Um, whereas with a dual camera, Obviously, there's still workarounds. I don't know if these right. cameras are adjustable, but that was that was my understanding of the basic idea of yeah. of. So, so wait, so to play in Title Tuesday, I'm going to have to buy like an Apple VR headset and wear that thing like the whole time. Like that's. I but don't it know. only I, cost a hundred dollars two years, <laughs> two three years from now. I'm sure. Yeah. So. I, I don't um, even like I don't even like when they make you enter moves on like a little on a you know, like a little tablet, you know, to, to broadcast the game. I like the old score sheets, you know, and everything yeah. like that. So I'm not sure I'm going to be ready for wearing uh, for, for wearing a headset like that just to make sure I'm not just to make sure I'm not cheating. But I guess I'll, I'll never be good enough to win, you know, title Tuesday. So it's probably a moot. Probably right. And it might not. Just... I mean, that's that, <laughs> that's a tournament that like Magnus plays in and Hikaru yeah. plays in and, and Caruana and Kramnik and so on. So I don't I guess I really don't have to worry. I think Nate should be proud that he was asked into the the cheat detection protocol because that means he's really good. Right. You know, I've never once asked me to do that. <laughs> right. I played Same in like <laughs> 50 title Tuesdays. You know, I've never once been asked to get to enter the Zoom call and be cheat, de you know, cheat detected or whatever. So kudos. Hey. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the same reaction. Yeah. And, and last thing on this point. Yeah. For Title Tuesday, it's probably even further sort of pie in the sky, but maybe they would maybe it's feasible in like, you know, the the global chess championship, the speed chess championship, one yeah. of these events that's invitational and a finite number of people. But anyway, um, I, I hope they're going after Apple as a sponsor. It's a natural sponsorship. You know, like this is a great new application for this for this thing. Maybe like students could use it to stop them from using chatbots, you know, to do their yeah. essays or something like that. For exams, yeah. there could be tons of applications for cheat detection, maybe. Yeah, and a classic example of sort of the arms race between like technology developing to prevent cheating, but also technology develops to, um, to uh, make it more feasible. We will be right back with more from Dr. Simons and Dr. Shabri. And we are back. But as we wrap up, um, Chris, I did, since you're a recurring, as you alluded to, guest on the pod, I still have to go and review the records, but I think you might, you've got to at least be tied for most appearances now. Um, uh, you recently played two tournaments, so, and as your son Caleb did as well, so I'd, I'd love to hear uh, your your broad reflections on the chess landscape and if you have any sort of takeaways for, for what you need to work on. Um. Yeah, I did. I, I basically decided. So what Caleb is, um, he was his, his official rating is like 1860 now or something. And uh, I sort of we sort of made a decision that uh, he should play like one tournament a month, you know, and keep at it. And I thought, well, if I play one tournament a month and keep at it, that's what I should be doing. Also, if I really think that I can get better at this game at my advanced age. Um so uh, we we implemented it starting in January. So we have played exactly one tournament per month um, since January. And uh, after the most recent tournament, he's going to be up to 19. He's over 1900 for the first time. So we had a great uh, tournament in, in Philadelphia. Um, uh, he played the um, Philadelphia Open and the World Open Amateur um, tournaments. Uh, and I played the Philadelphia International alongside the uh, which was running concurrently with those things. These were all in, uh, these are all tournaments that continental chess association runs, you know, year after year. Um, 
And uh, uh, the part of the point is like what we were talking about earlier, how and and Eric, you know, Eric Kislik and others have said this to me, you know, before, and it's 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 in many books that um, uh, the best training for playing tournament chess is playing tournament chess. Um, and unfortunately, it's a time consuming activity, right? You have to dedicate an entire weekend to it or maybe, you know, more than a weekend. And to do that once a month, you know, is not always is not always easy. But I figured I would try it for this year and commit to doing it for like 12 tournaments, you know, 12 months and see what happens. Like, do I actually get better? Because that would be the largest volume of games I have played in a year since probably something like 1990. Um, And back then I was getting better. You right. know, I almost got to 2300 feet. A. I got to 2270 feet a, and then sort of my activity dropped off because I got, you know, I started doing other things like being a grad student and, you know, and, and all that stuff. But, um, you know, what if I could do that now? Could I, you know, could I regain some part of my, my lost capabilities and chess is harder now uh, <laughs> than it was back then. Um, but it's also, uh, you know, the more you do something, the more, you know, I think the, the, the more used to it you get in terms of, being comfortable with your level of preparation with the possibility that you might lose and so on. I think it's, for me, it's uncovered that I think a lot of my chess problems are psychological in the sense that they don't have necessarily to do with my lack of chess knowledge or even my lack of skill. Although calculating variations is always the hardest thing for me. And it's, I think it it gets harder as we get older. Um, But psychological problems like uh, risk aversion, fear of losing to lower rated players, fear of making a mistake during the game, like recalculating and recalculating the same thing because it would be embarrassing to hang a piece or to, to lose quickly. Um, so a lot of those things like taking too much time, uh, you know, and getting into time pressure and not being able to win one positions. I, I drew, um, uh, I, I played in a tournament at the end of May, the cherry blossom classic, which is a very well-organized tournament in, in Virginia, Northern Virginia. And uh, the top section was, was excellent. I played all higher rated players and I believe I played, three international masters and one grandmaster in that, in that tournament. Um, and, uh, I, I, I drew all those games except for one. Uh, and in, uh, two of the three games that I drew against one against a uh, grandmaster and one against an international master, I was actually nearly winning at one point. Um, so I got some confidence that like, if I could just move a little faster and overcome some of these psychological issues, I could start having better results. And I was fortunate to actually beat an IM in the tournament that just ended um uh and uh even though my even though i was totally outplayed in the opening and was probably lost after like 12 moves you know of course it wasn't his best day either but you know he's a reasonably strong player so uh you know the the struggle continues <laughs> i'll let you know how it goes after the next six you know after the next next six tournaments and see and see see where we are then if i manage to accomplish that that goal there's always a chance i'll i'll fall off the wagon or whatever the right phrase is and you know, and, 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 uh, and, and stop playing. But, um, the, the playing itself, I think, I, I think helps. I think it's really true. Um, that yeah. just playing helps. Well, this is a conclusion of, of my book. So I'm glad to hear that. Dan, uh, any observations <laughs> from hearing Chris, uh, Chris discuss this? No, I just, I love following it since I haven't played tournaments for decades. I, I love following it, you know, online as he's, <laughs> as he's going, you know, it, it's really nice for me as a, as a player who, really wouldn't be able to make sense of the positions without studying them extensively. Um, it's really nice now to be able to kind of look at the positions, look at the moves and then run it through Stockfish. Okay. Well, you know, why is that better? And try and figure it out if I can. Um, and you know, for, for that aspect of it, it's really fun to watch. So I get a little bit of vicarious enjoyment, even though I was never playing at that level, I was more playing 
I was aspiring to be at Caleb's level. So, <laughs> yeah, Dan, Dan's one of my biggest Facebook Facebook fans of my chess of my of my yeah. chess posts. Yeah, um, I you know speaking of stockfish, I I did say something I did say something recently which I thought during during some of these games, which is I think we're all bad at chess and we just never realized because because computers are so good now, we're we're all really bad and sometimes I think. I think I'm gradually starting to internalize the model of the computer as as the player as opposed to the human. So I think I'm, that makes me too worried that if I make a mistake in a game, I'm going to lose. Because yeah. like I sort of imagine like what would happen against best play because that's always what you're seeing when you're analyzing, you know, with with your computer and so on. And I, I and I thought that during the games in this last tournament, I I was sort of worried that like oh if I give if I if, if he gets a positional advantage on the queen side, he might just crush me. And this is like a kid rated 1900 or something like that. Not that not that a kid rated 1900 isn't good, but the chances that they're really going to be able to follow through, you know, and 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 win is, you know, it's it's there, but it's much smaller than you would realize. And it's not inevitable the way it is with with the computer. And then looking at some of the games afterwards, I find that, you know, I was I was down like minus four, like you know, in stockfish terms, and yet I still beat a guy in 25 moves, you know. So there's like so much variability in human performance even within within games that it's probably counterproductive to sort of you know imagine that you know best play is what's going to happen all the time i mean you should that should be your baseline right but you shouldn't despair you know over the idea that you know and and i think you know any good player would tell you this and i'm just like late to the realization you know but um i think we can get a little bit like psychologically off balance by by analyzing with computers too much because we sort of don't realize like that our opponents are not going to play that well yeah, but it's there's sort of um, an, an internal tension because we're trying to learn from the computers as much as we can. But then we have yeah. to also sort of uh, keep keep the evaluation component at arm's length when we're actually competing. Yeah. Or yeah. Or just not not assume that like not assume that they're all playing like computers. Yeah. Which gets back to the cheating, which gets back to the cheating question a little bit, too. But but like even when I wasn't thinking of cheating, I was just thinking like. If I do this, it'll be like, you know, I, I don't think in these terms in the game, but I was thinking, wow, it could be minus one, you know, but that doesn't mean you're going to lose, right? Yeah. You know, like it would if you're playing, you know, stockfish or something. Yeah. And I struggle with the same thing when I'm worse. It's like, I'll, I'll sit there and think forever, you know, when when really you just have to accept that you're you're worse, but they still have to win the game, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just keep making moves. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, it'll be, well, good luck. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping to join you, uh, playing again. I know that you had to wait to turn your book in for me. It was the same thing. So, um, yes. So no more books for the next six months. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, well, I, I guys, I, I really enjoyed the book. Um, and definitely recommend it. There's there's just enough chess in there to, uh, as I said, to sort of keep keep uh, chess fans on their toes because you never know when it's coming. Um, but generally, I mean, it's a book that everyone should read uh, anyway. Uh, do you guys, before we say our goodbyes, any other points you want to highlight uh, or chess observations, Chris? Um, um, I know it's um, people always enjoy hearing your perspectives. I want to highlight the point that there's some chess, like you said, in this book, like we tried to, well, we didn't on purpose, but we wound up using some examples just, but there's also other games like there's bridge and poker, there's sports, um, there's investing, which a lot of chess players are probably into. Um, there's, uh, you know, uh, art fraud, which may be not so big in the chess world, but, um, is really interesting. Nonetheless, there, uh, is, um, deceptive marketing there. I think all kinds of things in this book that really, you know, or of interest to anyone. And it's not a book that just catalogs a lot of like deceptive practices and so on. It really tries to, you know, give the reader a framework for understanding 
how people get cheated, which can help them avoid getting cheated themselves in all of these situations, which are really things that, you know, apply to all of us uh, one way, one way or another, and give a a new perspective on understanding, you know, how cheaters get away with it and and, and, uh, maybe why we sort of misunderstand cheating some of the time, like has happened in, in the chess world. And I would just add that in some of the cases, we're actually using insights from chess and from other games to help explain how you can avoid deception in other contexts. So, yeah, yeah, that, that is one one thing that games games ably provide. Um, well, guys, I highly recommend the book. It's called Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. I can even hold it up here for those of you who are watching. Um, and... Uh, I think both of you guys are findable online for anyone interested. And there's even an Easter egg at the end of the book that <laughs> I, uh, I will leave there for anyone who who reads the the whole thing. Um, so, Dan, nice to finally chat. Uh, yeah, big fan of your work. So thanks for coming on the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. And Chris, a pleasure as always. Hope to catch you at a tournament in uh, real life soon enough. OK, great. I look forward to it. Thanks. Podcast Network.